Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm thrilled to have with me today two guests for a very exciting episode. We're going to talk about non-opioid adjuncts for pain control in the perioperative period. And to do that, I have with me Dr. Mark Bickett, who's an assistant professor of anesthesia and critical care medicine uh, with a specialty in chronic pain medicine. And Dr. Michael Grant is back with us. Actually, they're both back with us. They've both been here before. And Dr. Michael Grant also here, uh, anesthesia and critical care medicine with a specialty in cardiac anesthesiology and in adult critical care. As listeners of prior podcasts will know, Mike and I were co-fellows, and it's a thrill to have both of you with us. Welcome to the show. Thanks. We're happy to be back. Pleasure to be here, Jed. Awesome. All right. We're going to do this in two parts. First, uh, we are going to talk about the basics and what a non-opioid adjunct is, and then we'll talk about the pre-op and post-op aspects of this. And then we'll have part two, which will come out soon, in which we will cover the intraoperative portion of this topic. So let me start with a very basic question for both of you, um, which is to say, what is the point? Why not just use opioids? Why are we interested in all of these potential non-opioid adjuncts? Why do we want to use them, and what advantage do they have? So I think this is an area that both Mark and I um, have worked a lot around and within. And and one of the things I think is important to remember is that we're in the midst of uh, a large national opioid crisis. And at least in part, that's been contributed to and maybe even uh, a long-lasting effect of the way that we've managed patients perioperatively. And so one of the predilections that we both have is that if we were able to manage analgesia in a more comprehensive way perioperatively without the use of opioids, that we may lessen that burden. That's right. And I I think a few statistics really provide a sobering perspective on that. This last year in 2017, we had about just a little bit more than 70,000 deaths from drug overdose, and more than two-thirds of those were from opioids. We've certainly seen a rise in illicit fentanyl deaths, but even prescription opioids that people can get after surgery contribute to that. So any efforts that we can undertake to reduce people's reliance on opioids will likely go a long way. And it's one way that, as perioperative physicians, we can help address our patients' concerns about the use of opioid medications, both in the hospital, but also when they go home. Yeah, fantastic. And so really, both from a societal kind of opioid epidemic standpoint, and then just from a side effect of uh, opiate standpoint, this is a really important goal to try to pursue. Um, so, great. Let's try to conceptualize this from an uh, entire perioperative standpoint. Let's look at pre, intra, and post-op. 
Um, and you guys have both uh, done some interesting work with this. So why don't we start? We'll go chronologically. Let's start preoperatively. Um, most of the time, we're talking about PO medications that we'd give in the preoperative area. Um, maybe start by telling me why do we want to give anything pre-op when someone presumably doesn't yet have pain, obviously with the exception of someone who comes in with pain. But for someone who hasn't had surgery yet and, and let's say has no pain in the pre-op area, why do we want to give anything? Why not wait until they experience surgery and pain? Yeah, so, so I think there's a little bit of controversy around this topic because, um, you know, again, one of the impulses that we've always had is that somebody should be developing some level of pain before they have some rescue associated with it. But I think what we've started to realize, especially recently, is that if we can um, layer on some level of protection against some of those pain, pain impulses preoperatively, that at the very least what we see is a reduction in the amount of subsequent opioid use that they have intraoperatively. And in fact, there are studies around some of these uh, medications that we'll talk about um, that suggest that that fact is long-lasting, that it actually happens to go on for another 24 hours or so after surgery. And, and admittedly, I don't know that we have a great handle of what the exact mechanisms for those are. Um, there's this interplay between this concept of being preemptive or preventative, and I think these are terminologies that come with it some baggage, but the long story short is we do see a true effect from having these medications provided well ahead of the incision actually occurring. I think it certainly makes sense from more of an anatomical perspective if we think about the pain pathways that we have where you have... Uh, input that comes from the periphery into the dorsal horn and then these wide dynamic range neurons that sit there and then become quite sensitized from noxious stimuli. And uh, surgery certainly qualifies as that, but if we're able to prime the pump, so to say, um, whether it's preventive or preemptive, as Mike mentioned, um, that certainly seems to uh, help reduce the need for opioids uh, both during surgery and then, and then following that event too. Mark, I'm reaching way back here, I think, to medical school, but is there something called wind-up, and is that related to this? In my head, I'm thinking that in some way, if you're stimulating pain fibers again and again and again, that they get more sensitized, and I don't know why I think maybe that's called wind-up. Tell me that I'm, yeah, so, I'm completely So the wrong. phenomenon of wind-up you're talking about really is a marker of central sensitization, and that can happen in particular when our nervous system, and particularly when the central nerves kind of take on a little bit of a mind of their own. And similar to how patients can exhibit um, hyperalgesia or allodynia as other markers of a kind of an aberrant uh, nerve processing, uh, increased sensitization to pain with wind-up, that's a similar case as well, where you have a similar low-grade noxious stimulus over a period of time. And instead of just eliciting one burst of um, stimulation uh, in the nerve, um, it ends up actually amplifying the effect with every subsequent increased uh, uh, stimulation that you get after that. Okay. And so we think maybe these preoperative analgesics may help prevent some of that. Well, certainly, if we're helping to spare opioids, I know, you know, we get into other reasons of like, well, why is it good to not necessarily give patients opioids? Uh, you know, certainly side effects come into play. All medicines have side effects, but the more opioids people get, the more likely they're going to get side effects. It's a dose-dependent relationship. But also, um, there certainly is a concept of opioid-induced hyperalgesia that can happen, and that is also intimately related to both the concentration of the opioid that someone's exposed to, um, but also, um, to a certain degree, uh, the, the amount of time that they're exposed to. And so our ability to really reduce um, people's exposure to opioids can help in those ways as well. Okay. So we both may prevent some of that um, kind of uh, oversensitization, but also if we have to choose something to give preemptively, there are some non-opioid options that will prevent some of those or avoid some of those side effects. That's right. Great. 
All right, so let's look at some of the things that we give. So very common these days to give um, gabapentin, NSAIDs, Tylenol. Um, one maybe less common, but that, that Dr. Grant here mentioned to me earlier uh, is duloxetine. So maybe let's go down each of those and talk about a little bit, you know, what the um, evidence for them is. Should we be doing them in your guys' opinion? Let's start with gabapentin. Is that something everybody should be getting in a uh, preoperative area? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, there's a there's an onus here to establish kind of the evidence for the use of some of these medications in every kind of surgery. Um, and, and oftentimes what we see now in the literature is, is another service line that comes on board that establishes the evidence around a single medication. What we probably have, at least for, the, for, for gabapentin, is overwhelming evidence in the areas of things like large abdominal incision surgeries and some limited evidence, at the very least, in orthopedic procedures that allows us to understand that the use of gabapentin preoperatively is of benefit, at least in its opioid-sparing qualities and probably post-operative pain scores. At least that's where the evidence lies. Okay. So if you, and you have, of course, uh, helped design and design some ERAS pathways, is there anything you would not include, uh, Mike, anything you would not include gabapentin in? So I think rather than think about where gabapentin can't be included in terms of the surgery, I would think more about things like patient characteristics. Mm -hmm. So some of the risk factors that we talk about are things like old age and low GFRs. So in those settings, at the very least, you should be thinking about modifying the dose. And you know, the reason I hear that like 60 is the new 40, Mike. So <laughs> when you say old age, I mean, how old are we talking about? <laughs> Great question. All right. So this is fair. You know, not every patient's the same, but what we've written into some of these guidelines is that, that what seems to be a reasonable cutoff is somewhere around the age of 70. And again, not all 70-year-olds are the same, but um, admittedly, but what we do know is that is also concomitant to a kind of known reduction in GFR to a below or level of about 60. Those are kind of the magic cutoffs that we talk about from time to time. And at least in those settings, what I would recommend would be to reduce the, the dosing. We often talk about a, a bolus dose of 600 milligrams or so. I would at least half that dose in those patients. And, and in some cases, if you're really concerned about those patients, um, you would consider eliminating that medication altogether. Okay. Mark, you agree with that? He sold me on that. All right. Great. So 600 milligrams PO is the, let's say, standard dose in pre-op, and then you might cut that in half for someone with some reduced kidney function or who's a little older, or you might cut it out completely. That's right. And the kidney function certainly makes a lot of sense. If we put on our chronic pain hats for just a moment, Please. you know, we certainly have to renally dose gabapentin based on uh, the GFR that somebody has. So uh, it, knocking that dose down for folks who, uh, you know, have, are these streams of age or have that reduced renal function really does make a lot of sense. We will sometimes, uh, Mike, you and I will get patients in the ICU who uh, are uh, not waking up as quickly as we might want, and sometimes uh, we'll get some of the nurses will ask, oh, is this gabapentin coma? Is that, and what they mean by that is that did this patient get gabapentin pre-op and that's why they're not waking up? Is there uh, evidence to support that that may be that patients who are struggling to regain full consciousness post-operatively, it may be from that preoperative gabapentin, or is that just a true, true, unrelated? So, so I, I think it's definitely a contributor. I mean, I, th I think um, particularly in the patients that have some of these risk factors, it's at least got to be on the table as consideration. You know, one important piece of this is that there's really no reversal to gabapentin. So it really is a time-dependent kind of clearance. And so, so I agree, that's probably part of it. But, but as, you w as we'll talk about here, there's a number of things that have been layered on that all in of themselves can have some 
implication for some of these um, long-lasting effects as well. So, you know, importantly, and I know we'll get to this, the idea of adding on these as a bundle, um, you know, we there are some synergies here that, that we have to be cognizant of when it comes to things like, you know, a failure to wake up after surgery and things of those natures. Absolutely. So someone who gets gabapentin preoperatively, 600 milligrams, they're young, they've got good renal function, should they continue it postoperatively? We'll get to the post-op area, but since we're talking about gabapentin, is this something that has benefit just as a one-time dose, or do they, is it better if they continue it? So this, is, this has been studied a lot, actually. And so um, one of the areas where we feel like the efficacy has improved is by continuing this on as a scheduled medication postoperatively. What has become a little bit more controversial is what the uh, appropriate dose is. Mm-hmm. Because um, as Mark can attest to, we know this pretty well in the chronic pain literature, and, and there's a, a graduated way in which they add this medication into somebody's um, daily plans. And you know, this is done over the course of weeks and even months. Mm-hmm. And so to, to do this aggressively in a perioperative, acute perioperative setting has its risks. Um, now, that said, what we have recommended is that patients can be scheduled reasonably, at least on a daily basis, and sometimes as often as two or three times a day at a lower dose, albeit, than that initial bolus dose that we'd give preoperatively. Okay, great. Mark, you agree with that? Yeah, you know, certainly when we see people in an outpatient setting, uh, starting off, you know, at 300 milligrams once a day can be a reasonable uh, starting point for many, many patients. And so um, we do somewhat compress that in a preoperative period because we have greater oversight for the patients, but we also have to be very cognizant about these side effects, and in particular the sedation ends up being one of the more concerning ones um, in that period. Absolutely. Okay, great. Let's talk about NSAIDs. So what do, what do we think about that? Should patients be getting NSAIDs? If so, which ones? NSAIDs, I think, from a standpoint of providing an opioid sparing ability, are an excellent addition. And perhaps uh, besides uh, acetaminophen, which we'll talk about in a little bit, perhaps you know one of the two easiest ways to help spare opioids through uh, activation of you know the COX system and trying to inhibit the synthesis of prostaglandins and cyclooxygenase. And COX one, COX two. So. Uh, or I guess I should say non-selective you, or selective. Well, you get into an, an interesting uh, discussion here because um, at least, you know, when I put on my hat about, you know, well, uh, what's the whole deal about the COX-2 selective versus the COX-1? And uh, not to open up a can of worms here, but uh, it, I think it turns out that the physician community was misled a lot by drug advertising back in like the late 90s where there, this whole idea that, well, somehow side effects are much better with these selective COX inhibitors um, really was found out to be not true through a series of lawsuits that uncovered a whole bunch of uh, additional data that was really held through publication. So um, from that standpoint, um, there are ones that we traditionally use, and um, celcoxib certainly comes to mind, at least um, historically in this area. I don't know if Mike has other thoughts or says uh, that's a bunch of balderdash. But. No, no. I, I mean, I think this is a great place to start. I mean, I think the easiest thing to, quote, unquote, sell to your kind of perioperative community would be something like celcoxib. The idea that being COX-2 selective tends to at least carry with it some um, uh, theoretical measure of um, um, comfort for your surgeons. Uh, you know, one of the stated concerns around the use of NSAIDs preoperatively is this concept of bleeding. Right. And, bleeding. Right. So, you know, the predilection here is that a COX-2 inhibitor may have a little bit less concern in that area. I will say that there's been a lot of work done in this area, and the suggestion that the even scheduled use of NSAIDs leading to subsequent bleeding is probably unfounded. 
And, and therefore, I would probably advocate for the use of a non-selective COX inhibitor or, you know, Celebrex in the preoperative area. I think either one would be appropriate. But again, I think what we've written into most of these guidelines being, you know, Celecoxib specifically is really speaking to, to that viewpoint. And is there any disadvantage to Celecoxib? Let's say a surgeon said to you, I don't care. You can use Advil. You can use or Advil, ibuprofen. You can use uh, Celecoxib. You pick. Is there any reason you would pick Celecoxib, um, or are they equally efficacious as far as we know? So I'll say that there are not an awful lot of studies that I'm aware of um, where we've done a head-to-head between a COX-2 selective and a COX-1-2, at least in an acute perioperative setting. I'm not aware of those. Um, and so for that reason, I don't know that I can make a grandiose statement here. Mm-hmm. But, but again, I think the suggestion... Well, you can still make grandiose statements. <laughs> well, I think, I think that, you know, the way that I would couch this is to say that I think either is appropriate. And, and because I, I'm not aware of it being a, a, a less superior, you know, a non-inferior medication, I would still, have, you know, I'd be, I think it's reasonable to have celecoxib within your armamentarium. Okay. And what dose of celecoxib would you give? So we often recommend 200 milligrams. It just seems to be a really reasonable starting dose, and most people are pretty comfortable in that area. Although, you know, admittedly, it can go up to 400, 600 milligrams in patients, you know, the right patient groups. Right. And contraindications? So, again, uh, you know, renal impairment tends to be a big one here. And, you know, particularly for people with pre-existing renal impairment, that's the group that you want to highlight. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we again, a lot of data done in this area. And what we've now found is that if you have normal kidney functions, this is an incredibly safe medication, even on a scheduled basis. But it's in those those patients with a low GFR that you have to be cognizant. Is that the GFR 60, you think? I think 60 is probably reasonable. I mean, you know, again, the cutoffs here are a little bit, a little bit challenging to establish for, for silicoxid, but I think 60 is, you know, generally speaking, when you're in, you know, grade three dysfunction, you're probably thinking about reducing doses or eliminating the medication. Yeah, that seems pretty reasonable. Okay. And same thing as with the gabapentin, maybe some additional uh, reason to keep it going postoperatively, or is it less of an issue with... So less well established is the is the scheduled use of Celebrex postoperatively, but but very well established is the is the scheduled use of NSAIDs in general. So, provided that again this is a is a multidisciplinary conversation, yep. but um, provided that you have some comfort in your service line, what we recommend is the scheduled use of an NSAID that's IV if you can't tolerate a PO alternative, or a PO which tends to be an ibuprofen equivalent. Um, in a scheduled fashion postoperatively is what we'd recommend. And I think it, it calls, you know, Bear's mentioning that the fact that it, it needs to be scheduled. This needs to be something that patients aren't necessarily having to request for, that there needs to be, you know, much more reliance on the system to provide these non-opioid means uh, following surgery. And that's a very important aspect to uh, the success of many of these lines when it comes to ERAS and opioid sparing, that, um, you know, we're not missing some of these doses or uh, that they're not um, being forgotten about um, because they are scheduled in that manner. So. Well, I think, I think it's worth highlighting that I think what Mark's speaking to here is this idea that, at least culturally, we have this belief that the only true pain medication we have is an opioid-based medication. And I think that in a setting where patients recognize that there is genuine benefit to the use of these medications from a pain standpoint and ultimately an opioid sparing standpoint, um, that they would that that cultural phenomenon could theoretically shift, and that's really in part what we're trying to do here is shift the culture around the entire service line, patient included. Absolutely, we'll talk about Tylenol in a minute, but uh, or um, acetaminophen in a minute, but acetaminophen, ibuprofen, uh, I guess NSAIDs in general. 
are fever suppressants as well. Is there any concern, especially postoperatively, in terms of uh, fear of masking a fever if, uh, pa- as a sign of a patient getting uh, infected? So I love this question because this is one that comes up an awful lot, actually, in the critical care setting. Yep. And, um, you know, again, what we have right now is relatively speaking anecdotal evidence um, because, again, to my knowledge, I'm not aware of, of data in a scheduled Tylenol setting. But from my own anecdotal evidence, what I can tell you is that if a patient's got a true fever, it tends to break through a Tylenol. And mm-hmm. even in a scheduled fashion, it tends to break through. Um, so I would not withhold this medication out of concern that it's masking some other sign or symptom. Great. I would say for acetaminophen, uh, you know, as we think about just having this conversation about NSAIDs, uh, some of the best evidence that we have in acute pain uh it comes with the combination of acetaminophen and an NSAID like uh, Celebrex or ibuprofen. And um, perhaps the best studied model of surgical pain comes from the dental literature, third molar extraction, or when people have their wisdom teeth taken out. And uh, there's an excellent Cochrane review out there uh, by Moore, who's a dentist at Pennsylvania, and um, he shows that essentially a combination of acetaminophen plus an NSAID uh, has a lower number needed to treat, which means it's more efficacious than uh, even several opioid combinations or opioids by themselves. So uh, really important, I think, characteristic to point out. Great. So let's talk about acetaminophen. Anything um, different when we think about preoperative uses of acetaminophen in terms of uh, when you would use it? Or are we talking about similar kind of all comers with the exception of some contraindicated patients? Generally, you know, if someone can tolerate acetaminophen and they're not, uh, we don't have concerns when they take it, for example, that they would have, uh, you know, uh, liver dysfunction. Um, it, it, it is, uh, I think, a, a really nice adjunct um, to folks who are presenting for surgery. And, you know, one question that's come up as well, you know, do we need to be particularly emphatic in terms of um, seeing, you know, making sure people get acetaminophen, whether it's in a pure or IV form, you know, I think uh, most of our comparisons that we've done between the PO and IV form have not r- really made made much all that much difference. Um, and the fact that people can get this in a PO form before surgery, uh, it, it's so inexpensive that uh, I think uh, advocating for many patients to get it who, who are eligible is, is very appropriate. And the patient who would not, so the one contraindication would be someone with liver dysfunction. Any other patient you would not give preoperative Tylenol to? So I don't think so. You know, in, and in terms of the liver dysfunction, what I will also mention is that even in patients with with very impaired liver function can tolerate a dose of Tylenol. And in fact, we would tend to use up to three grams even in patients who have genuinely impaired, almost cirrhotic level liver dysfunction. And that's three grams in a 24-hour period. In a 24-hour period, yeah. So, you know, although that may not necessarily be our recommendation, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that's because you see an elevated LFT or you know somebody has hepatitis that these are automatic contraindications. I think it's a part of the entire patient's kind of presentation that you should take into consideration. Now, one of the things I would say is on the flip side, once we get after the surgery and think about people going home, it's really important that patients understand that three-gram ceiling is kind of an across-the-board absolute ceiling. And some people will say four grams. I think if you look pretty closely at the data and you're a little bit more conservative, you probably, at the end of the day, say three grams. And partly it's it's easy to explain to somebody that they could take one gram of Tylenol three times a day, and that's very easy to communicate to patients. But also... Um, we certainly don't want patients going above that in a prolonged period of time for that risk of 
of liver disease. It is one of the more common reasons that patients end up control, calling the poison control hotline and having to come in because of acetaminophen toxicity. And that idea, I think, has gotten masked a little bit through the opioid crisis that we have um, because people have not necessarily had to pay as much attention to the adverse effects that come from many of these other medications. It's very real, though, um, and does warrant a conversation with a patient to make sure that they have a good understanding of it when they're heading home. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing would be that acetaminophen is in other things than just acetaminophen. Mm -hmm. So anything that is a combination of an opioid and acetaminophen, uh, those grams need to be taken into account as well. Absolutely. Those combination products are important. Right now in the United States, we don't have an approved NSAID acetaminophen combination, but I know that there's one in phase three trials right now in 2019. Um, If you're in Europe or in other markets, that, that combination product as a prescription is available to you. So just be aware of that. Great. All right. Duloxetine. Tell me about that, Dr. Grant. When uh, is there is there an advantage to using that? Should we be adding that into our preoperative medications? Yeah. So the 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 caveat here is that this is early data. So we've really only been investigating this medication in a formal sense perioperatively for the last couple of years. And I would also say that the quality of the data is still, uh, I would say, generally speaking, somewhat lacking. But I think we are starting to see that in some way this is contributing to a opioid opioid sparing um, phenomenon. It's used almost always in those settings as a single agent, so it's not within these bundles, right? So it's very difficult to know what to do with this medication if you've given another medication like mm-hmm. a gabapentin or what have you. But what we are seeing is that, is that some of these mood stabilizing medications may have alternative mechanisms through which they work, and this happens to be one that, at least early on, seems to have some promising results. Oh, mechanism. You have me intrigued, Mike. Tell me more. <laughs> well, so that, right, so this is the million-dollar question, right? So a number of these medications, and we've already mentioned several, you know, gabapentin and pregabalin, for example, it's still not entirely clear how they work generally, and even more specifically how they work to modulate pain. And I think duloxetine is going to fall within that bundle. And, you know, we may not touch on this today, but things like benzodiazepines, at the very least, have some efficacy in this area. And it's not entirely clear how they contribute. There may be some suggestion that they reduce this sense of catastrophization or at least the behavioral component that may add to um, worsening pain. Um, But I do think that some of this still requires some further exploration. So for me to simply say, okay, tomorrow we should start using duloxetine on everybody would be very heavy-handed, and and I would not go that direction. But I I will say there's early evidence to suggest there may be a role here. But do we know how these medicines work in general? So, again, I I think the short answer is we're not entirely certain. So I, I think... You know, you've mentioned a couple of times today this concept of being very conservative in our interpretation, and I think that's all the more warranted, especially when we start thinking about some of these medications that are really earmarked, FDA-approved for alternative uses. Mm-hmm. And the idea that we're just simply going to shift them over and simply because I can get them in my formulary that I should, write, should be using them for alternative uses, I think, again, it's a heavy-handed interpretation and probably not warranted. I mean, it does make sense with duloxetine, right? As a serotonin, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, the you know, you at least have a couple different pathways that could be involved, and uh, what's really happening for people around surgery is the same as what we're seeing in our pain clinics when we think about prescribing duloxetine as a treatment for, say, musculoskeletal back pain, or uh, you know, with gabapentin as an alpha two uh, delta ligand. Uh, you know, um, and thinking about how does how's that working as well. And it's interesting, you know, you bring up about this question about mechanisms, because even with acetaminophen, I think, you know, we know it works centrally, but we still have a bit of a question as to exactly where that's happening. So a whole lot to be 
to, to be uh, discovered out there for any budding scientists, uh, clinician anesthesiologists who want to want to take on some of these very interesting questions. Very exciting. Awesome. All right. And so uh, then when we talk about post-op, we've already talked about a lot of this. A lot of these same medications can be continued post-operatively, taking into account, of course, renal function, age, and the condition of the patient. Post-operatively, the other one that came up when we were chatting earlier is dextromethorphan. Um, I don't know if either of you want to just comment on if that's something we should be using more postoperatively or what the evidence for it is. So uh, with dextromethorphan, again, I think uh, this just gets back into the notion of, um, you know, using another medication with a slightly different mechanism of action, uh, you know, truly using multiple modes of analgesia for the multimodal aspect. In dextromethorphan, here we have a medication that's working at the NMDA receptor, and it actually provides a nice segue into this class of medications that is having the site of action at the NMDA receptor. And so uh, besides just dextromethorphan, uh, it's available in the PO form, which is one of the really nice ways that people have incorporated it into the uh, postoperative regimens. In in contrast to one of the more familiar medications that we as anesthesiologists use, ketamine, that we know works at NMDA receptors as well. All right, fantastic. We're going to wrap up part one there, and we will come back with the next episode will be part two, where we will talk about the intraoperative portion of this. Thank you both for coming. This is fantastic. Everybody, let us know. Go to the website, accrac.com, accrac.com, where you can leave a comment. Everybody can learn from your thoughts. What do you do with these non-opioid adjuncts, both from the pre-op and post-op perspective? We'd love to hear. You can also see all of the episodes, and you can leave comments. You can join the mailing list. Lots of fun stuff there. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. Of course, if you'd like to support the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, we really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And, of course, you can also give directly on your own time at your own pace if you'd like by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Any little bit is much appreciated. Thank you so much to those who have already become patrons or donated. It really means a lot. All right. That is it for today for the ACRAG podcast and Doctors Bickett and Grant. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.